Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. Hello, you're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, censorship or protection against misinformation. The spotlight on Spotify exposing untruths which are deliberately intended to deceive us has thrown up some very interesting questions for the streaming service. So what's happened to the company's share price since the controversy began and could it affect its popularity in the longer term? We're going to chat to Kevin Duggan, a finance reporter for New York magazine who's been following the story. And cybersecurity is certainly one of the big issues of our time. Our energy systems, our health systems, our personal banking and all of our personal data are increasingly exposed to the threat of cyber attacks. We'll chat to Microsoft's Director of Solutions about how companies and consumers can protect themselves from the ever-increasing threats to our online safety. And finally, as Valentine's Day approaches, flowers are in season. Do you ever wonder about the business behind the blooms? It's worth 15 billion euro worldwide and it supports millions of people who grow and transport and sell them. So we're going to examine how the trade has coped in the pandemic and how sustainable the flowers you buy really are. You can get in contact with the programme by emailing us on takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstocknt. But first up today, we're joined by Kevin Dugan, finance reporter for New York Magazine, covering business, the economy and cryptocurrencies. Kevin, you're very welcome to the programme and thanks for taking the time to join us today on News Talk. Oh, sure. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, Kevin, you've been following the story of Spotify in recent weeks and months. Can you start us off by just reminding our listeners just how big this company is? Sure. Spotify is the largest streaming music service uh, in the world. It's about 180 million subscribers. Uh, it is about twice as big as Apple Music, its next competitor, um, by and large. They, they are the company that people go to when they want to stream music. So very impressive figures and hardly surprising then that they'd have the finance to pay $100 million for someone uh, like Joe Rogan. Can you tell us who exactly he is and how popular he is? Sure. Uh, Joe Rogan, uh, he's a comedian. He uh, was a uh, he was a host on a television show uh, here in the U.S. called Fear Factor. He is a, uh, he does a comment, uh, commentary on um, uh, fighting shows, um, and then he started this podcast, which has uh, I believe 11 million or so loyal listeners. Um, he has gotten this uh, very rabid fan base in part because claims to be attacking the orthodoxies of, you know, whatever whatever people might be thinking. He's, he's very interested in trying to poke holes, in, and, and he does this from a, a very much of a, an everyman perspective. And that has led him down the path of, you know, um, questioning the validity of uh, vaccines uh, and, and COVID research especially, which has made him very contra- uh, controversial. And some of his interviewees and contributors are very controversial in their own right. Tell us about how the attempts to boycott the Swedish streaming company first started. Sure. Well, you know, th- there have been, um, there was a number of doctors who signed a letter, an open letter that was airing concerns that Rogan was um bringing on people who were saying things that were incorrect about, um, about the vaccine, about the way that it worked, about the risks 
for people. And, you know, right now, especially in the U.S., misinformation, outright lies about the efficacy of the vaccine have been a driving force in uh, people not uh, taking it and keeping the number of infections and deaths very high, especially relative to other uh, developed countries. So, you know, when when uh, it really started to pick up steam when uh, Neil Young uh, decided that he didn't want to be on the streaming service anymore uh, if Spotify was going to continue hosting his uh, Joe Rogan shows. So um, Neil Young then came out with his own letter saying it's it's them or it's him or me, and Spotify decided to stick with Joe Rogan. And then Joni Mitchell got involved, and the campaign to sort of boycott Spotify started. But in your view, that boycott campaign never really stood a chance. Tell us why. Sure. Well, you know, it, it, it's, it's a very complicated picture because, you know, with, with a tech service like Spotify, um, when you have people disconnecting from the service, they say, I don't want to subscribe anymore. Um, they're just so big. You know, 180 million people. Um, you know, th- these are these are staggering numbers. And Joe Rogan, you know, his 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 popularity is chiefly in the United States, right? So even if you have a significant number of people in the U.S., Spotify can just kind of move on. They can uh, bring in people from around the world, and that has been their game plan. They they have been uh, trying to expand internationally so that it dilutes. It, you know, it would effectively dilute the effect of any kind of uh, boycott measure from the users, mm. right? And we've seen this um, from uh, Uber. Uh, in the United States, people uh, were boycotting Uber uh, uh, after uh, there were problems with immigration issues here in the U.S. With Facebook, these don't really take off. And, in, you know, in part, it's because the the tech world has just gotten so good at um, being part of our everyday lives. And they're just so big. Uh, they've grown, you know, really without restraint. So the the power of the individual consumer has been weakened so much compared to, you know, if you wanted to boycott a certain food or a local restaurant or something like that. And, and as you point out in an article that you wrote recently, um, it's also down to their algorithms because the company probably has very deep insights into all of the personality profiles of its users. So they can just throw up what users want. So if I want music, they won't be pushing three hour controversial podcasts from the USA at me if I just want to hear an 80s music mix or a bit of Pavarotti, will they? That's exactly right. I mean, these companies, um, they, they have a tremendous amount of intelligence on their own users. Uh, Spotify makes it seem really fun. They every year um, in November, or December, they come out with uh, these Spotify wrap. Uh, you know, they're, they're these um, reports that show here's what you listen to all year. Here's what your favorite genres were, and they package it in a way so that people would want to share it online, share it on their social media feeds, and it gets a ton of engagement. People love to do it. Yeah, and so. Um, you know, if you think about that, right, if you think about the way that they are able to collect that data just on, you know, and, and to boil you down as a user to what you like and what you don't like, they're probably figuring, well, okay, this person listens to this much music every day. We give them something special. Maybe they're not going to 
you know, uh, go to another service. Maybe they're going to stick with us. And that's, you know, that's part of the calculation here when they decide that they're not going to uh, go away from a controversial speaker like Joe Rogan. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Kevin Dugan, a finance reporter for The New York Magazine. And tell us, Kevin, um, they did try to limit the damage, though. Rogan apologised himself a little bit. What else did Spotify do to try and uh, engage in some sort of damage limitation exercise? Yes. So um, Rogan apologised. Um, the company uh, said that they're going to put up um, uh, little uh, pieces of information that say that there were, you know, that there would be controversial speakers on particular episodes. Um, and then they, they removed um, I think something like 6% of all Joe Rogan episodes, uh, ones that had uh, controversial speakers. And he, he's had a number of controversial speakers over the years, people like Alex Jones, people who were notorious for uh, spreading lies and misinformation. So, um, you know, there there has been some fallout to the damage. Um, and, and you know, it, it remains to be seen how much, uh, how, you know, how much mm. good this has done for them. Right now, we don't know how, how many people are quitting. Oh, and, and Kevin, what has happened to the share price, if anything? Well, uh, the share price immediately after they uh, apologized, or after Joe Rogan apologized, um, it spiked. Um, I believe it had its best day um, ever since it was trading uh, on the public stock market. No such uh, thing as, then, as bad publicity then. Right. Yeah, maybe. Right. I think people kind of figured that, you know, the damage was done and, and you know, Neil Young and Joni Mitchell, as great as they are, as influential as they are, um, they are not going to be moving the needle for most people. Um, and, and especially when, you know, new music comes out all the time and they can just kind of replenish it. Finally, Kevin, how do you think the company handled the controversy? And do you think it's over or what is what's next on this one? Well, how do they handle it? I mean, it, it's from a from a corporate PR perspective, not much has changed. So, you know, for for the Spotify executives, I would think that they would be pretty happy so far. Um, but long term, though, I don't know. You know, people, I think, are starting to realize that the companies that they interact with uh, on their phone the most, um, they they all have they all act in similar ways, um, and maybe they're not you know, uh, representing their customer base. Maybe they're not uh, making their own customers happy. Uh, right now, there is a big push in the United States for uh, regulation of big tech companies, right? Um, possibly breaking up Facebook, um, you know, limiting the power that these companies have amassed over the past 20 years. So will that affect Spotify? I don't know. It's a Swedish company. But um, it, it, it's possible that this could kind of, you know, tip sentiment over so that it, it could. Yeah, there's a big push here in the EU um, on those mm. regulatory uh, uh, issues uh, for, for all of the platforms, really. But Kevin, that fascinating insights there. Uh, and thank you for taking us through them. That's Kevin Dugan, finance reporter for New York Magazine. Kevin, thanks for joining us on News Talk today. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it.
Now, you're welcome back to the programme. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Cyberspace is an artificially created environment where millions and millions of us now go for our business. It's also where we engage with banks, government systems and conduct much of our own personal business and entertainment. Securing that environment is a really big challenge for policymakers, for regulators and for governments all over the world. So I'm joined now by Des Ryan, who's Microsoft's Director of Solution, to discuss this issue. Des, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. So Des, uh, Ireland is number one in the world when it comes to ransomware encounters. What does that mean and why is it happening to us here? Um, so we released a... Um uh, a report just before Christmas called the Microsoft Digital Defense Report. And that report um, is, is, is basically the, the outcome of all of the different uh, signals that we take in from our systems around the world. So whether it's uh, consumer market um, signals like Hotmail, etc., or whether it's the corporate side of things, we take in about 24 trillion signals a year. Wow. And these reports are what we're seeing. And so what that report specifically said with regard to Ireland is that we're number one in the world when it comes to ransomware encounters. So while the United States would probably top the charts in terms of the volume, per headcount or per, um, per machine, we are unfortunately the top of a very bad list. And why, uh, why are we targeted, Des? Uh, look, that's an interesting question. I think, I think people... People will target us for lots of different reasons. Uh, Ireland is at the center of the pharmaceutical industry. Um, lots of amazing work gets done here, and therefore uh, people who want to get insights uh, into um, you know, products or developments would target Ireland as, a, uh, as a, a potentially an easy way of getting at that data. Um, you know, Ireland has also got a huge amount of, of tech companies based here. Uh, and so there's lots of different reasons why we would be targeted. Um, but I also think there's an element of it that's related to us. Over the years, we've probably been a little bit lax and, mm. and thought, sure, who'd want to attack the Irish? But the reality is uh, we're actually a very uh, appetizing target for some of these bad guys. Absolutely, because of those uh, companies, as you say, being located here. Now, just referencing that report that, that you mentioned, um, I noticed that it said 58% of all cyber attacks in Ireland during the past 12 months have been perpetrated by uh, national uh, states. Uh, are we talking about state involvement in particular? Is the finger being pointed at anyone in particular, Russia, China? Um, so Microsoft tracks over 40 different nation state actors. Um, we're very slow to point the finger at a particular government because mm. in some instances those will be loosely affiliated with the government. Sometimes they will be you know, directly funded by government. Um, but yeah, we, we, we certainly see a lot of activity from the Nobelium group, for example, who um, are, are thought to be associated with the Russian government. Um, they're targeting Western companies, trying to get insights and obviously with what's going on in that part of the world at the moment. Um, anything they can do to unsettle um, the West, they will probably exploit it. Yeah. We've also seen the likes of Iran uh, and North Korea be particularly uh, active uh, in various things. They target slightly different things. They, they're they trying to get at different kinds of data. Um, but, yeah, all equally, um, equally um, 
at fault in terms of the rise of nation state activity. We might examine that um, Russia, Ukraine, uh, US triangle in a few moments. But can I just ask you, um, you're about to release a, a new series of cyber security intelligence. Uh, can you tell us about why you did that and what are the key findings from it? Yeah, so the, the, the digital defense report that I referenced previously is an annual report that we put out. It, it's it's very detailed. I think the latest issue was 130 pages. So it's very, very comprehensive. But this industry moves very, very quickly and, and the threats change all of the time. Um, and one of the best defenses against cyber crime is awareness and insights into what's happening. So we feel if we can get this data out there more quickly, uh, people will be more informed as to what's happening and might be able to respond more quickly. Um, so as a result of that, we're putting out what's called cyber signals. Uh, so cyber signals is a kind of a, uh, almost a digest version of what we're seeing. Um, it'll come out quarterly. And we've just this week released the first um, the first uh, episode of it. And could, um, could you could what, you give us some key findings from it? Yeah, sure. So um, I think one of the the key findings uh, is around nation states. Um, one of, another key finding is uh, about uh, digital identity and how digital identity is becoming more and more the target for cyber criminals. Um, and then the third area that's covered in this particular issue is also going to be about ransomware, because ransomware is still the most dominant form and, and often the most devastating form of cybercrime. And so there are some insights in there with regard to that. So you're trying to highlight um, awareness of of the issues that that are that are out there. But what are the best measures that organisations can take to mitigate the threat of malware or cyber attacks? Yeah, just, just before COVID, we, we did another piece of research specifically here in Ireland into the security landscape. And we found that 46% of the employees that we surveyed had had no cyber security awareness training in the 12 months previous to that. And so that won't have changed dramatically over the last uh, year or so as COVID has happened. Um, but my personal view would be that your employees are your first line of defense. And so making them aware um, of some of the threats uh, might just stop them from clicking on the wrong link. Uh, so if we can make people a little bit more vigilant as to what to look out for, that is um, certainly a good start. Beyond that, uh, things like making sure software is updated regularly, um, using multi-factor authentication, uh, keeping offline backups. These are the kind of things that people should be doing you know, an interesting statistic from the report was that, you know, of all of the people that use Microsoft's Active Directory, so the, the user um, management uh, part of our offerings, only 22% of, of the people on that system use multi-factor authentication. So little things like that can make a massive difference in terms of um, defences. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Des Ryan, Microsoft's Director of Solutions, about cybersecurity. You know, obviously we're playing catch-up in many areas in relation to cybersecurity. So could Ireland be creating more jobs in this space? I, I attended a, a recent conference and Oisín Smith, the Minister uh, for this area, spoke about, you know, maybe the role the third-level education sector could play in this area. Do you see more people getting into it and involved? 
Absolutely. I think um, a couple of points I'd make on that subject. So there is there is a skill shortage globally in cybersecurity. So um, we're, we're, we're one of a number of different countries that are potentially struggling to fill the demand that's there. Um, but Cyber Ireland has done some fantastic work uh, in terms of, of developing a community in Ireland, uh, developing a centre of excellence in Ireland, and working with some of the third level institutes with regard to uh, producing graduates who are educated around cybersecurity. Um, so I think it's a growing area. Uh, it's an area that's unfortunately unlikely to go away anytime soon. Mm. Um, and so uh, anything we can be doing to accelerate the, the skills into the market would be a fantastic thing. And as I said, Cyber Ireland has done some great work in that area already. Yeah, now turning briefly to the international scene, which you referenced earlier, there's a really good website called AML Intelligence, and they run very interesting stories on the issue of cybersecurity. Um, this week, they ran a feature about the tensions between the US and Russia over Ukraine that has led to warnings from the ECB to all of the European banks about preparing for a Russian-sponsored cyber attack. Do you know how the European banks are preparing for, for such an event? Well, they'll be getting advisories like the one you uh, you mentioned, and uh, there was a joint advisory that came out from uh, the FBI, the National Security Agency, and the um, the NCSC in the UK. Um, so, putting out a joint advisory like that is obviously an indication that there's kind of heightened concern. Um, so, you know, all of the, all of these these banks will will you know bank the banking area would, would be fairly well secured. Generally speaking, so they will all be doubling down on on whatever security um, measures that they would have in place, and that would extend out beyond the actual bank uh, into uh, their suppliers. And, and increasingly, you're seeing banks, um, you know, roll out things like multi-factor authentication to to their own end users. Um, so a lot of a lot of important work going on there. Des, you've obviously seen the landscape here for the cybersecurity issues change vastly in recent years are companies taking it seriously now investing a lot of time effort energy and recruiting people to deal with it from from an internal perspective yeah look obviously we've had some fairly high profile uh, examples locally uh, in my role i get uh, unfortunately get exposed to um, these attacks when they happen and they happen far more than i would uh, would like uh, some of them are are very public some of them uh, are not not public, um, but I can tell you there's been a real spike over the last eighteen months or so in in ransomware attacks, um, and we're certainly seeing uh, a lot more uh, preparedness uh, in in the companies that we are working with. So we're seeing companies put together uh, contingency plans for if or when an attack happens, and how would they mobilize the appropriate people to respond, whether that's Microsoft or, or somebody else that, that would have the expertise in recovery. Um, we're certainly seeing an increased uptake in, in some of the technologies that we bring to market. Um, and, and I'm sure our competitors are, are, are similarly seeing an increase in, in demand as people, um, you know, kind of raise the profile of, of the, the security within their, their organizations. We have a long way to go, unfortunately. There are still lots of examples where you know, I, 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 I talk to companies who, who've got, uh, I guess, alarming um, security postures uh, and are probably at risk of a real risk of an attack. And your message to them would obviously be? Um, 
crack, you know, crack down on your hygiene. Make sure that um, you've got all of the right measures in place. Um, don't set your security posture and forget about it. It's something that needs to be continually adjusted. We've had a lot of change in the market over the last uh, 18 months as people adapted to COVID. Um, and so you need to continue to revisit what's going on from a security perspective in your organization. Continually look at your controls, continually measure your risks. Um, and don't leave it to chance. Now, Des, you mentioned there that you're at the coalface of some of these evolving issues with companies. The ones who fare better, uh, what do they do differently? I think that the, the people that, that handle it well are the people who make some decisions ahead of time. So what we always see when we hit, hit these uh, ransomware attacks is uh, you know, confusion within, within um, the, the customer environment. These attacks typically happen on a Friday evening or on a long weekend, uh, when they, they, the attackers know they can have the most impact. And so in those early days or hours and days of, of responding to an attack, there's a lot of decisions that have got to be made uh, quickly. So the people who respond the best are the people who've made decisions in advance. Who are we going to call when, if, if and when this happens? You know, what's our position on ransomware? Um, what's our position uh, with regard to communicating to the marketplace? Um, it just if you've got those decisions made early, um, it just means that you can respond and focus on the right outcome in terms of recovery more quickly. So be aware, prepare and have some contingency and emergency planning internal for for such an eventuality. Absolutely. Des, very useful information there. That's Des Ryan, Microsoft Director of Solution. Des, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. You're welcome back to the programme. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Now, flowers have the power to comfort us, to lift our mood, to brighten our homes. The flowers and plants market is characterised by intensive cross-border activity and a single bouquet can be made of flowers from several different countries. With me is Amy Collis, who is Senior Supply Chain Programme Manager at the Fair Trade Foundation in the UK. And we're going to discuss the complexity of those supply chains in the industry and look at how the industry has fared in the global pandemic. Now, you're welcome, Amy. Um, I just want to kick off by asking you just how big is this industry worldwide? So the, the flowers industry worldwide is worth, I think, in the region of six billion uh, in terms of the export value of cut flowers. Um, so it's, it's a really big industry and it does sort of reach across the world in terms of the countries that are importing and buying flowers. Uh, so big importers are people like uh, the United States uh, and then in Europe, um, the UK and Netherlands. Uh, and then a lot of the sort of origins where cut flowers are grown are East Africa. Uh, so places like Kenya and Ethiopia, uh, as well as uh, South America. So a lot in Colombia and Ecuador. Now, like every other industry, it's been affected by the pandemic hugely. I read a piece on the BBC website that suggested the cut flower uh, market lost a billion euro in the first six weeks of lockdown. How heavily has the industry been affected by the pandemic? Yes, Mandy. I mean, in, in 2020, when the, the pandemic sort of first hit in sort of uh, end of March time, uh, it, it was really significantly hit. Um, we saw that a lot of the flower farms uh, lost 
you know, sales, they were down to around 20% of their, their normal volumes. Um, in places, we saw up to 50 metric tons of flowers being thrown away each day uh, because the farms just, just couldn't sell the flowers. Uh, obviously, in the consumer markets, we had all of the non-essential shops being locked down. Uh, we saw shops prioritising essential goods. Uh, and obviously, there were the restrictions on gatherings and things like weddings and, and funerals, uh, where normally there would be that consistent demand for, for flowers. Now, we've heard a lot about supply chains uh, in recent uh, months and and it's affected inflation um, all over the world. But looking at the supply chain issues around this cut flower industry, it must be very complex and needs to be super efficient to operate. It is, yeah. And I mean, it, it's very dependent on a huge number of, of workers. Um, and obviously, they, they were the ones that were, were so impacted by by the pandemic. Um, so, you know, looking at fair trade flowers, um, but they're often coming in from countries like uh, Kenya and Ethiopia, uh, and then coming in through sort of traders in Europe uh, to uh, markets in, you know, sort of the UK and, and Ireland. Um, and when you look at the number of people that are involved at the kind of production level, um, I mean, in Kenya alone, there's around 150,000 people that are directly employed in the flower industry, and then about another 2 million people that are indirectly uh, dependent on it. Um, so when there are these big sort of disruptions, uh, it has really far reaching impacts. Yeah, uh, so it's a really important part of business uh, in developing comp- in developing countries talk me through some of the difficulties that they in particular have faced over the last two years yeah, so I mean, as I say, when uh, when it sort of first hit and the the volumes and the sales dropped off, uh, we saw many of the the workers, um, you know, being sort of having to go without work, um, being you know unpaid. Many of the the farms dropped down to under a third of their their previous staffing levels. Um, we then saw school closures and sort of the the shutting down of, of childcare facilities. That meant that, that many of those workers, yeah, again had to take further time off or, or had to stay home. To, to look after children um, and I mean I think it's worth noting that in the flower sector and, and certainly within um, the fair trade certified farms uh, it is nearly half of the workforce that, that are, are women um, so those were the ones who, who really faced the brunt of that crisis. Um, we, we did some sort of research as well uh, using uh, sort of a, a special technique to, to really hear directly from workers what their experiences had been. Uh, and we heard around sort of, you know, the, the challenges of food insecurity because of, of workers not having uh, any income to be able to buy essential provisions. Um, we heard around sort of the, the mental anxiety and the stress uh, and the concern about, you know, children not being able to continue with their education. Um, and I, I think, you know, again, worth noting that many of these, these workers are on very, very low wages. Uh, so the average for a, a Kenyan flower worker is around £78 per month. Um, which, you know, means when there is a crisis or an unexpected event like COVID uh, that, you know, sort of impacts their, their income, it leaves them in a, in a really vulnerable position. So, Amy, talk to me about um, fair trade in this sector. What, what do you do? So we work with uh, flower farms uh, across sort of Eastern Africa and in Ecuador, uh, and we work with those farms to ensure that they're meeting um, 
the fair trade standards. And what those standards do is they, they try to ensure there are good and decent working conditions uh, and that any of the production is being done in a way that also protects the environment. Um, so it's very much looking at supporting that kind of sustainable production. Um, and on the sort of the, the worker side, you know, a key issue for us is around uh, wages. Um, so we've actually introduced uh, a floor wage uh, which means that all workers on fair trade farms uh, must be paid at least um, this floor wage, which is set at uh, the World Bank poverty line. Um, and what we saw when we implemented that back in 2017 uh, was that it really had a massive increase on workers' salaries. Um, so in Uganda, for example, uh, wages increased by around 130% uh, and in Ethiopia by around 75%. Um, and, and for us, you know, that, that's not the end of the journey by any means. That's just the first step. And we're continuing to push uh, to try and, and secure you know, a living wage for all of those flower farm workers. Um, we also at Fairtrade have something called the, the Fairtrade Premium. Now, this is a sum of money uh, around 10%, which is paid on top of the purchase price of flowers. Uh, and that money is given to the, the workers to choose how they want to invest it. Uh, and often they will invest in things that benefit, um, you know, sort of their families and their communities. Uh, we see that the vast majority of that money tends to go to education services uh, and to support scholarships and bursaries for, for children. Um, in 2020, the total premium that was generated was just over 7 million euros. Uh, so that really does have a, a big difference. Um, and it's only because of sort of our partners and, and customers that, that choose fair trade and that buy fair trade flowers that, that we're able to sort of um, generate that premium for the, the flower farm workers. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Amy Collis, who's Senior Supply Chain and Programme Manager at the Fair Trade Foundation in the UK. And Amy, does your business model depend on customers att attempting themselves to be more responsible in the choices that we make? Definitely. Um, I think, you know, our, our key message is that, you know, by buying something as simple as a, as a bunch of flowers, it, it really does have a big impact. Um, and, you know, by choosing that fair trade mark, um, you know, customers are, are providing that support directly uh, to to flower farm workers and the same is true across you know all of the different sort of commodities and products that people might buy uh, so I think definitely having having that awareness of how uh, a purchasing decision has these bigger impacts is, is really key and and I think on the back of COVID we are we are seeing that a lot more I think that the sort of experience of, of COVID uh, worldwide um, has really sort of made customers think a lot more around you know the origin of goods and, and where they're coming from uh, which is which is obviously great um, and you know particularly I mean we're just coming up to Valentine's Day it's sort of a time of year where you know, we're thinking about sort of giving gifts of love and uh, sort of, yeah, trying to send positive messages. Uh, and actually, it for us, that's the perfect time to, to sort of add on that fair trade element to say, actually, if you're buying someone a bouquet to say you love them, then also give a little bit of that love back to the, the people that, that grow the flowers in the first place. And speaking of targeting people uh, who want to try and be more sustainable, what additional measures do you take on that sustainability and environmental front? Yeah, so I would. Uh, so I think it's as many as twenty five percent of our standard 
criteria are specifically looking at environmental um, criteria. So all of the fair trade certified farms need to need to meet those criteria uh, and they cover things like uh, water use, uh, looking at reducing climate emissions, um, looking at pesticide use as a, as a really key one. Uh, so we have a, a strict sort of list of regulating the use of any hazardous chemicals uh, within the flower farm um, production process. We then have sort of a lot of the, the farms choose to do additional environmental um, projects and activities. So uh, some of the premium has been used by farms to do tree replanting or to develop different sort of conservation initiatives. Um, so there's actually a group of growers around Lake Navasha in Kenya. Uh, that have come together to form a sort of yeah a, a group that uh, really looks to promote the natural resources in that area um so it's yeah it's it's really key to fair trade and it's really uh, important to to the farms themselves uh, we actually had the fourth farm that's fair trade certified um receive their carbon neutral certification at the end of last year as well uh, so yeah it, it's definitely a, a key point for us and um customers are growingly motivated by sustainable products and, and doing the right thing but there's lots of people who are also motivated by price so are flowers from your competitors who don't have your values much cheaper as a result i mean i i would say that they you know fair trade flowers are available at all different price points um so we we have sort of a, a range of flowers that, that are available that goes from uh, sort of a, a cheaper bouquet all the way through to you know a very sort of uh, luxury high-end bouquet coming from from a florist so there, there really are options for for every budget um i would say that you know in some cases some of those bouquets uh, will be slightly more um but that's because obviously they do have that added benefit of the premium uh, and of you know sort of um, paying the extra to ensure that farms are meeting those those key standards uh, and sharing that that back to the workers now as you said we're heading into valentine's day so what advice amy can you give to people who might tr be trying to look out for that more uh, socially responsible uh, purchase so yeah i think absolutely the the key message would be to say you know for, for any shoppers and businesses that that can um to look for and to, to buy and source fair trade flowers um so definitely at Valentine's Day, but also sort of year round. Uh, we are stocked in, in you know, most of the major retailers. Um, I think in, in sort of Ireland, Audi is, is a really big partner that, that has a lot of fair trade flowers. Um, and, you know, know that in doing so, you sort of your purchase having a direct impact uh, for the, the workers that, that have grown the flowers. Well, unfortunately, that's all we have time for, Amy. Thanks for those insights into the flower sector. Uh, that was Amy Collis, Senior Supply Chain and Programme Manager at the Fair Trade Foundation in the UK. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks a lot. And staying with this subject, next week we'll be speaking to Fairtrade Ireland Executive Director Peter Gaynor about the upcoming Fairtrade Fortnight 2022 campaign. So if you're interested in making a more informed and sustainable choice about your purchases, tune in next week for that. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. I hope you found the topics interesting and maybe some useful information about how you can protect yourself online and make more informed decisions when you go out to buy those Valentine's Day flowers. 
Now, we're always interested in hearing about the topics that you might like to have covered. So please get in contact us with your ideas at takingstock at newstalk.com. And while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the Newstalk app. We've got a bit more time in the podcast, so there are extended conversations with our guests today. My thanks to those guests and to the production team of Simon Keane and Mick McCarthy with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae's up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thanks for tuning in and enjoy the rest of your day. 